in week 11 of the biopic of the leadership and controversy, the heart and the brokenness of one of the greatest characters in all of human history and in the Bible, David. David's story is ripe with incredible moments of God speaking through him and then other moments where he, like, loses it completely and misses God. Yet God gives him the title, Man After My Heart. What good news for you and me that a guy who would miss it a time or two or 12 would still be a man after God's heart. Well, today I want to welcome you joining us from Dybal to Duncan to Nacogdoches, Iglesia, right here at the broadcast location. All of our guests for the first time. Let's, let's give our guests a great welcome this morning. So glad you're joining us. Happy Thanksgiving. Um, you know, there's a little lesson that they would give you in speech class if you have a good uh, speech teacher. And that is uh, manage the expectations of the crowd. And uh, when you are, I'm gonna give you a little hint for the, for the Thanksgiving table this week, okay? If you got a funny story, don't tell people you have a funny story. Just tell a story. They'll determine whether it's funny or not. But a speech lesson is don't say, okay, I gotta tell you this funny story because then people kinda go, okay, prove it. <laughs> like, prove that it's funny. I'm gonna break that rule today. I'm not gonna tell you that I got a funny story to tell you, but I, I am gonna say to you, this entire week, God's been stirring my heart over this message. And I really feel like it's one of the more important messages that I've ever preached. And some of you right now, I shouldn't have said it because you're like, hmm, prove it. <laughs> okay, I'll be the judge of that. And that's fine. You can dive in wherever you want. It's important. So I hope that you will have a uh, posture of expectancy and a posture of vulnerability and what we're gonna talk about today. As we move towards Thanksgiving, I'm actually titling this message, A Thanksgiving Parade Gone Way Wrong. And we'll talk about that in a minute. As we are in the shadow king, King David, uh, we have come to the point where he was a shepherd boy, he was anointed, didn't even understand what it was at the time in the living room of his dad's house, Jesse. He grows up as a military might, defeating Goliath and routing the Philistine armies and enemies and the Amalekites and Ammonites and Edomites and you name itesites And he is just a overnight a Hebrew celebrity. He is the Hebrew idol. He is one uh, the Hebrew voice, okay, with his harp and with his slingshot. He is like triple threat. Watch out, ladies, okay? And David now, um, instead of being able to have a succession plan with Saul, Saul gets jealous. The fourth quarter of his uh, monarchy, he is hell-bent on killing David, his, 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 the, one of the sons of Israel, and yet uh, a son of the nation, so to speak. And instead of Saul being focused on all the real enemies, Saul got, bl uh, he got uh, blinders on and, and he tunnel vision and he focused on chasing and used all his energy to chase down David instead of creating a succession plan. David becomes an outlaw. He has to leave out of his own home. He had married the daughter of the king, Michael. 
and he has to leave out of the upstairs. He has to shimmy down the gutter of the farmhouse and run out. And Michael kisses him on the mouth and says, see you later. And it's going to be okay. And she kind of covers for him like Ferris Bueller's day off. And she puts a, the Bible says, puts a, like a totem pole in the, in the bed and puts the covers over it, you know, like you do with the pillows and kind of puts a, a top of goat hair on top. And uh, Saul's enemy comes in, or his army comes in as assassins. And they go and like, start, you know, you know, cutting open the, the, the bed. And it's, it's just a stone totem pole. And Saul gets there and Michael's like, you know, I don't know what happened. He made me do it. And, and Saul rips her out and gives her to another man, um, takes her from David and is illegal on, on the law and, and, and doesn't honor David, disgraces David and gets, gives his own daughter back away to another man. Now pause on that. Think about that. We're going to come back to that a little later. David becomes the outlaw. Finally, Saul dies in battle. The tribes are all split. It's a civil war. It's nasty. There's so much uh, just, just infighting. It's a demoralized, dismantled nation. And David has got to bring the kingdom back together. And he does it in three different ways. The first one is the political component. He brings the tribes back together. He gets rid of the northern kingdom capital and the southern kingdom capital. And they create a new capital. They take over the city of Jebus and they rename it Jerusalem. Same place, same city that exists today in 2021. He also brings back his wives back into his house and he marries for political advantage to a few other tribes. So do not put David in a suit and tie. He is a polygamous guerrilla mercenary warlord living on the edge of, a, of the Bronze Age and he will cut your throat and pray for you all at the same time. He is a bad mama jamma. And politically now, he has secured unity again. Unity equals anointing. I'm going to tell you something. It's going to be real hard for God to bless these United States in the continual disunity that we see. Disunity creates division. Unity equals anointing. And he brings unity to the tribes. He has a military component. And the military component is his very first uh, time on the battlefield is, is the general, not just the king, but the general, he routes the Philistine army. And we, we talked about this last week that before he said charge, he inquires of the Lord. He shows that he's not going to jump in, even though he's comfortable on horseback, even though he can hit you in the middle of the forehead in a full gallop uh, going 30 miles an hour. He's got no problem taking you down, but he always wants to show the people that are following him. God comes first. God comes first. And he always inquires of the Lord in this military battle. So now they've defeated him not once, but twice. And he's, he's showing them, okay, we, we're, we're strong militarily. We're strong now politically. And today we uncover this third prong, this third leg of this, of the kingdom, uh, of the kingdom. And that is the spiritual component. We show up to second Samuel chapter six. He has established Jerusalem. He has routed the Philistines. They're licking, they're licking the wounds. And, and now they are ready to set up the capital city and here's what David does next. Second Samuel chapter six, David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. This isn't some SEAL Team Six quiet secret ops thing. This is a 
big ol' to-do. This is a march down Main Street, and he gets 30,000 of his elite troops. It is the SEALs, and, and it is the Marines, and, and, and it, it, it is the Berets, and I mean, it, it is the squadrons that are at the top of the top, and they gather together, and here's what happens. He and, his, and all his men went to Bala in Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God, also known as like the Ark of the Covenant, which is called by the name, and this was the name of the Ark of God, the name of the Lord Almighty. The name of the Lord Almighty was the name of the ark, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. A cherubim is a kind of an angel, and cherubim on the ark were two furnishings on the top of this piece of furniture. Now, in order to understand this, we gotta, we gotta kind of like rewind 400 years earlier. And 400 years earlier, we're back to the desert. The, the Hebrews have already exodused out of Egypt as slaves. God delivers them through the Red Sea. He shows up as a cloud by day and a fire by night. He shows up and gives them clean water and bitter water. He shows up and he, he, he provides food for them when they had no food. He shows up and, and, and he protects them and he, become, he is showing them, I will be your God. Will you trust me even when you're walking in the wilderness? And after they get into the wilderness and they have to wander for a while, they begin to set up a temple. They begin to set up a holy place for them to worship God. And it's here that we begin to see the ark. As a matter of fact, God gives Moses these directions. Have the people make an ark of acacia wood, a sacred chest, 45 inches long, 27 inches wide, and 27 inches high. Overlay it inside and outside with pure gold and run a molding of gold all around it. Like this is nice, this ain't your Ikea ark. On top of that, cast four gold rings and attach them to its four feet, two rings on each side. Make poles from acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Insert the poles into the rings at the side of the ark to what? One more time, to what? Yeah, this was the way they carried it. There was something so holy and so precious. They weren't even to touch it. They only could touch the poles to pick it up and carry it. And in, the Bible even says, it's very, very, very clear. These carrying poles must stay inside the rings. Never, ever, 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 ever remove them. Never, never, not once. No, never. Hebrew, in Hebrew, the word never means never. Okay, so we got that down. Now, that ark was like a box. It's like a box on two poles. People would walk in the front of it and the back of it. And inside the ark, okay, inside the ark, the Israelites placed three important symbols, three important artifacts. One was a jar of manna. And for 40 years, the Israelites in the desert, there was not anything to eat. But God provided clean water and he provided manna every single day. In the morning, uh, they would wake up and outside of their tents, there was, there was this new dew and there was this dewy bread, like dumplings, if you will. And, and it was manna. The word manna in Hebrew simply means, what is it? They didn't even know. What is it? Some, some of you, this Thanksgiving, you're going to have manna at Thanksgiving. <laughs> like, you know, if you've ever been to church long enough and you went to a potluck or what we called an afterglow, like you probably had some manna at there, you know, Shirley brought her famous casserole and you're like, 
<laughs> you don't even know what to do with the casserole. You're just like, manna, <laughs> what is it? But see, the jar, the jar of manna represented that every single day. It, 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 wasn't, you know, it wasn't Ruth's Chris, but, but it was every day he supplied their needs every day. He gave them this day their daily bread. And this represented God's provision. And so in the ark, there's God's provision on display. It was Aaron's budding rod, which was just a stick ripped off of a tree that Aaron would walk around in to keep his balance. Aaron is the right-hand man of Moses at the time. And God does a supernatural thing in Aaron's rod. It all of a sudden like wakes up one day and it's, it's, it's got apples on it. It's like, I mean, just luscious red, red apples. There's just budding like that. Like what in the world is going on? It's a miracle and it represents to the people of God, God's power. That God is willing to make life come out of dead things. Thank you, Jesus. That God's able to take, take things that felt separated, things that felt dead, things that, that, that we didn't see could ever, anything good could ever come of it, that God can bring life to it again. That God has power for the dead areas in our lives. And then, of course, the tablet of the Ten Commandments, those, those ten that, that later Jesus would say, all of those hang on a hanger, and the hanger, the rod that that hanger hangs on, that rod is love me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love people like that. All of this other stuff's good, but it all hangs on love me with everything and love people like you love me. But in those Ten Commandments, we see God's principles. Jesus says it's not about just don't murder it's not just about thou shalt not lie. It's about love me with everything and you won't murder. Love your neighbor like you love me. You, you, you won't covet their jet ski or their wife. Love me and then love people like that. Can I tell you something? If you struggle with obeying God, who doesn't? I promise you though, if you're thinking that your relationship with God is all about obeying him and then you love him, if you'll learn to love him, you'll understand what obedience is. It starts with love. And so, of course, we, we see that they were to make this ark cover the place of atonement from pure gold. So the, the top of the box, the top of the ark of God, make it out of gold. It's the place of atonement. Make two cherubim from hammered gold and place them on the two ends of the atonement cover. So it looks a little bit like this. Our best rendition in the descriptions of the Bible that the ark would look like this. It was found years ago by an archeologist named Indiana. And uh, that's it's a joke. Um, now, here's what I want you to see, that, that this place in between the cherubim was called the mercy seat. Uh, it was the place of sacrifice. And uh, when we see that the purposes of the ark and the 47 inches and the 27, 26 inches and the, the poles and the gold and the cherubim, sometimes if we're not careful, we make it all about the dimensions and all about the, 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 the jewelry of the ark. But let me show you, it wasn't all this just from pure gold. That wasn't the focus. Here was the whole thing God was trying to do. And I'll meet with you there and talk to you. I'll meet with you there. Ever since the beginning of time, God desires to meet with you and talk with you. He is not a distant God. The Bible isn't a story about people trying to get close to God. The story of God is God trying to get close to you, but he won't force you. I'll meet you there and talk to you. So 
what happens is in their Jewish tradition now, one time a year, the priest, the high priest, would slaughter an animal, would collect the blood, would take a, 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 uh, like a, a palm leaf, a hyssop branch, and would walk. Jewish narrative says that it was in the, the Bible says it's in the Holy of Holies, like in the inside of the inside of the inside chamber, okay? It's, you gotta go through it through doors, you gotta go, you know, like get in there. It's in the holiest of holies, so that's why only one person, one time for one year could go in there. Jewish narrative says that they would tie a rope to, to the high priest's leg in case he was kind of walking in there, acting holy, but not really holy because he had kind of some secret stuff he did last Thursday. And like if he fell dead in the presence of God, they couldn't go in and deal with it, so they would like drag him out, you know. Oh, uh-oh, uh, do you feel that? I know, uh-oh, I wonder if Derek's hurt in there. And they'd drag out Derek and he's dead. But the job of the high priest, Derek, <laughs> uh, would be to take that branch and would, would sprinkle blood on that mercy seat. And he would pray over the whole nation and the nation would be forgiven for that year. Something had to die in order for the nation to be forgiven. They were covered because of the mercy of God. They were asking, will you do it one more year? Give us your provision, give us your power and give us your principles one more year. The good news is later on in John chapter 20, when Mary goes, to, uh, goes into the holy of holies, the grave of Jesus in the garden, she goes up to the garden tomb and the stone is rolled away and there are two angels sitting on either side where Jesus had been buried. And it's in this moment we see that these stories aren't about these stories. These stories are all about Jesus that Jesus is the provider, Jesus is the power. Je live by Jesus, he's the principle. And we see an image of the ark of God right there in that story of the resurrection. That Jesus, his blood, he's not only the sacrifice, but he's also the king and he's also the high priest. And once and for all, not once every year, once and for all, he paid for all the sins of humanity. The ark of God, though, before Jesus would come, that would be the embodiment. That would be the, the physical presence that was precious and holy and feared. But just like you and me, Israel had some issues. They appreciated the ark. They put it where it needed to be. They treated it with respect. They put it into the Holy of Holies. They tied the rope around the high priest Derek's leg. They did all of that for years and years and years. But like many of us, they got a little comfortable. And over time, just like as it is in marriage, you start dating, you're like, no, you hang up. No, you hang up. No, you hang up. No, you hang up first. Now it's like you're calling them back. Why'd you hang up? Why'd you hang up? Am I talking to anybody? You may not get anything. I'm getting something off my chest today. Well, all of a sudden it's like, oh, good morning. And you're like, oh, don't even talk to me until nine o'clock. Don't talk to me until I've had my Starbucks. I'm not even a Christian until I have my Starbucks. St. Arbucks is what I call it. Israel got comfy with God. Israel, they had a shift. They, their perspective got jaded. They loved God when God was there for them, but they always wanted a backup plan. It's why it was all about the, do not have any other gods before me. Only have me. Don't make any other graven images. Only have me. One God, one God only. You don't need four as a backup plan. You do not need plan D and R. 
And that was the problem with the Israelites. It's not that they didn't recognize God as the one true God. They just wanted a backup plan in case the one true God didn't do the, what, what they wanted them to do. And so write it down. Israel's issues is they shifted from a supernatural God to a good luck charm. So they started not trying to seek the presence of God, the power of God, the provision of God, and the principles of God. They would say to the high priest, hey, bring that ark out. We're about ready to fight the enemies, and we can't touch it, but if, it, if we could touch it, it'd be like the Aladdin's lamp for us. And we're just going to kind of rah, 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 play like a champion. It was their rabbit's foot. It was their four-leaf clover. It was a good luck charm for them. God is not our good luck charm, everybody. But many times, the issues with Israel is always pointing us back to our own issues. Started strong with God, and then we getting in the way. We want to do it our way. We want the strength, and we want the power, and we want the glory. We do. We love to be God in our own eyes. And he's saying, if I just become a good luck charm that you don't even think about me until things go bad, you don't even think about me unless you really need, you know, oh, I didn't study like I should have. Will you help me on that test? And he becomes a blue genie instead of a holy God. And that's the problem with Israel. Write it down. They shifted from a holy God to a handy God. Instead of seeking him and his power and his provision, they just wanted to make sure that they were cool when they made their own decisions. Their perspective had gotten perverted. Can I tell you something? That's the power of the Lord's prayer. The power of the Lord's prayer is not in memorizing it because you can memorize it and nothing changes in your life. In fact, people think praying, I don't, I don't see any results in my life because I prayed this and nothing happened. And so you, you actually lower the power of prayer in your life because you're basing it on a wrong, twisted, perverted perspective of prayer. When we go back to the very essence of how Jesus taught us to pray, it all starts with our father. Okay, what's my last name? You're my dad, my last name. I'm a son or daughter of the king. Hallowed be thy name. You're holy and I am not, but I am holy because you're holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Before we even get to the giving us, before we get to the giving, we've already established you're the provider, you're good, it's your will, not mine. Give us this day our daily bread. It's a perspective shift. Would you write it down? The greatest healing most of us need today is not a financial healing, a marriage healing, a relational healing, a physical healing. Most healings, the most of us need is a healing of our perspective of who God really is. If we can just, it, 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 sometimes the sickness is, is not meant to be healed immediately, not so you will just be hurting, but so that your perspective can lean into the power, provision, and principles of God. And the Israelites couldn't get there. So they just wanted the, the good luck charm. Is, is the ark here yet? And they'd come up the mountain. They're ready to fight. And all of a sudden, ba -ba -da -da! and the priests are like, let's go. And they start dancing around the ark. <laughs> ark. And what happens is finally the time comes where, again, this is 400 years earlier, where they, they begin to... Uh, just see God as a token, and God lets the Philistines defeat them. And not only do they, the Philistines beat them sideways, but they take the ark from them. They take the ark, the presence, the physical manifestation of the presence of God. They take it as loot. So the Philistines capture the ark, and here's what they do with the ark. 
They walk it in, party and hearty, uh, into the first city, into the city of Ashdod. And they're like, looky what we found, nanny, nanny, boo, boo, Israel. And they take it into the temple and they set it in front of their God of war, the God of Dagon. And they set it down there in front of their statue of Dagon. And they're like, look what we did. This, this uh, God ain't got nothing on you, Dagon. Woo, woo, woo. I ain't lying. This is in the Bible. This is what happens next. The very next morning, the priests come in to kind of sweep the floor. And they're, they're whistling, you know, um, as Dagon panteth forth the water. And, and, and they, <laughs> they, they, uh, they, they, they walk in and Dagon, the statue, has fallen over. It's like the best spiritual God fraternity prank ever. God just like knocked down Dagon and he's like kneeling before the ark. And so they're like, oh man, this is terrible. So they, 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 they have to pick their God back up. Can I say something to you? You're not serving the right God if you got to prop up God. If you got to pick your God back up, you're serving the wrong God. If you got to make excuses for your God's weaknesses, that's not God. Next day, next day, same thing, except this time Dagon has fallen over and his head is missing and his hands are missing. And God's up, God's up just like going, <laughs> yeah. And so the guys of Ashdod and all the army and the, and, and the main guy, the Philistines there, he's like, we don't want this thing. We got to get rid of the ark because not only does that happen with Dagon, but that same afternoon, crazy, weird. I wouldn't have thought of this. Very creative. We serve a creative God. They all get tumors and mice infest the city. So they're walking around with these tumors all over their body. And it's like <laughs> everywhere. And like, we got tumors. We got mice. Our gods are falling, our heads of our gods are falling off. So what do they do? They say, hey, let's get rid of this thing. And so they send it over to Gath, another Philistine city. You want to talk about a terrible white elephant gift. Sure enough, they take it to Gath. Same thing, tumors, mice. A couple of days go by, they're like, I don't think our homies in Ashdod did us a favor. So what do they do? They send it to Ekron, another Philistine city. Same thing. Finally, Ekron, they got a little bit of IQ left. And they get together, the priests of Ekron, they say, you know, they did it, bad stuff. Uh, you know, Gath, uh, bad stuff. Us, bad stuff. Here's what we need to do. We need to give this thing back to Israel. This is not helping us. And so sure enough, they put it all together and they, they put it in a cart and they put a couple cows in the front of it and they're, they're playing rock, paper, scissors, drawing the short saw, like who's gonna drive this thing back to Israel, you know? And as they are sitting there about ready to drive it back, the cows just start walking down, they just start walking to the street and they're like, okay, okay, peace. They leave with it a sorry gift, like, like a, a flowers and a thank you, like a sorry card, please forgive me. And it's not like your flowers and a, and a sorry card. They do write a card and they, and they put a gift. Weird again, like, I don't know. It's the Bible. You ought to read it. It's interesting. Um, they, they make gold tumors and gold mice and they stuff it in a bag and they leave it with the ark in the cart with a little letter, you know, from Aileen's florist, you know, have a great day. Have your God back, please. So it goes back to the Israelites and here are these two cows just, where do you want to take this thing? I don't know. I can't even, I mean, I think God's doing it. 
Sure enough, this ark pulls into the front yard of a guy named Shemesh. And, and Shemesh sees the ark. He understands what it is. So he, un, he unhooks the, the cattle. He kills them. He breaks down the, the, the ox cart, uh, makes a fire, puts the cows on top of it, burns a sacrifice to God, and he's wanting to do the right thing, and he places the ark like over in a shed, puts a little tarp over it. Man, I'm not making it up. I don't know if it's a year or a while later goes by and he's having a little, you know, party out in the backyard. I would say flipping burgers, but they were Jewish. So it was like chicken or something. And they're having a, bar, a barbecue, hummus barbecue. Kids are running around the shed and Shemesh is like, hey, hey, don't play around that shed. Don't play around that furniture. You better be careful over there. And he's talking to his friend. How's that potato salad? Oh, that's good. Hey, get off, get off the shed, get off the stuff. And sure enough, family, they're messing with the ark and they die right there in the yard. Just poof, Thanksgiving from hell. So Shemesh is like, huh? And the wife is like, huh? And guy's eating potato salad in the corner, huh? So they don't know what to do. They're just like, they're just like normal Jews. So they send it over to the priest, Abinadab. And Abinadab's like, be careful, because I've heard some crazy things, mice and tumors and dead kids in the backyard. So let's just, so he puts it in the guest room of his house, locks the door, and it sits there, the Ark of the Covenant, whose name is the name of the Lord God Almighty. It sits untouched, unseen, unapproached. The manna and Aaron's rod and the command, the provision, the power, and the principles stuffed in a closet. Because Israel just wanted to do it their way. So 20 years later, 20 years later, we get back to the story. David and all his men went to Bala and Judah to bring up from there the ark of God. So they set the ark of God on a new cart and they brought it from the house of Abinadab. It had been there 20 years, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, uh, one of our states is named after this man. That's a joke. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab. Look, look at this, notice this. Sons of Abinadab, they grew up in the house. Dad, what's behind this locked door? You go in that door, son. You want your teeth in your mouth or in your pocket? Don't go through that door. Some special, I don't even know what to do with that thing. Stay away from it. Okay? If you see mom going in there, just let her do her thing. Okay? <laughs> they had grown up 20 years with this thing. And they were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. And Ohio was walking in front of it. And David and all Israel were celebrating with all their what? I mean, this is a worship service. This is a turn up the sound. Get the lights. Hillsong Australia flew in for the party. Before the Lord with castanets and harps and lyres and timbrels and sistrums and cymbals and whatnot. It is a worship service to come and get this ark with 30,000 soldiers and a big old worship band. It is a full-blown Thanksgiving parade. And so they take it 
put it in the ark, put it in the cart with the poles, put it in the cart. It's easier, makes more sense, right? It's efficient. Nobody has to carry it. And they begin the downhill trek back to Jerusalem. And as they're going, uh, they're praising and they're worshiping and people have lined up on the sides of the street because this is a big thing, confetti and, and people just watching and, and holding their, their cotton candy and their balloons. Oh, look at that, David. Look at that ark. Oh, my goodness. But they came to a place, they came to a threshing floor of Nacon. It would have been where they would separate wheat and chaff and it would have been close to riverbed and, and, and it would have been an unstable area. When they came to the threshing floor, one of Abinadab's sons, Uzzah, Uzzah reached out and he took hold of the ark of God because, because not because he was wanting to see what gold felt like, he, because the oxen stumbled. They're in this dried up creek bed with mud in the bottom of it. And, they, and one, of the, one of the wheels hits a stone the wrong way and it, and it topples. And you know how something's like, it's like Jenga with the ark of the covenant. And all of a sudden, it looks like it's going to feel so, so Uzzah, you ever as a parent, like almost break your kid's ribs by like you step on the brakes and they're in the front and you just hold them like that. Your arm is worse than the brakes, but you do it anyway because it's instinct. It's instinct. Uzzah just like, ah, ah, and he grabs the ark. And what happens next is stunning for everybody at the parade. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. It was an irreverent act. There was not all this instruction of the gold rings and the poles and carry it and never remove the poles just because God, what was trying to be really, really detailed, <laughs> it's because it mattered how you dealt with the presence of God. And therefore, God struck him down, and Uzzah died there beside the ark of God. Zap, Uzzah's dead in the bottom of the creek. And the trumpets and the bands, they're like looking over, what in the world? David's up front on his, on his steed, and Joab gallops up and says, hey, we got to put it on hold, and all of the parade is mashing together, and it's pandemonium and absolute chaos, and David gallops back halfway, and there is the ark, and it's fine, but Uzzah is dead. And I love this next verse. So encouraging. <laughs> David was angry. Because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. David's like, here I am trying to help. I'm trying to get you back over to Jerusalem, God. You're, you're knocking Jews dead in the creek bed. I wonder if Uzzah like touches it and like, he's dead and now he's standing in heaven. And there God is. He's like, God? And he's like, what's up, Uzzah? He's like, I was just, he's like, I know, I know what you were just doing. And Uzzah's like, I'm just trying to help. Just trying to be nice. He's like, I know, I know. I don't need your help. And I love you. Welcome to heaven. Go stand in the corner for 12 years. You're in timeout. Don't touch anything. Put your hands in your pockets, Uzzah. Now, here's why this scripture, the Lord was angry, or David was angry. Here's why this helps me. 
I love the honesty of the Bible. I love the honesty. You know, this is one of the reasons why I believe you can really trust the Bible is because those that wrote it don't edit out all the crap of their lives. They keep it in. That's a pretty humble thing to do. Jonah, who writes Jonah, his saving grace is he writes that story. He is mad and prejudiced and racist against the Ninevites, but he comes around enough to write the story to show us that's not the heart we should have. They're honest. David's honest. He doesn't get it. He doesn't know why would such... Are you ready? Are you ready? We think in 2021 with all of our professors of philosophy and all of our new uh, 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 politically woke minds and racially woke minds and, and intellectually woke minds and, and sexually woke minds, all of these different things, we think that we are not the first generation in history to be enlightened enough to be offended by the Bible we're not the first generation saying, oh, did God really mean, does God really think that we ought to live with, by this, this thing? We think we're so smart and so intellectual because everybody that lived past us, they didn't have the internet like we have because you know the internet's made everybody smarter. <laughs> no, even in the very beginning of the first generation that ever lived, Adam and Eve, somebody was questioning the enemy himself. Did God really say you really got to live like this. You really got to trust him. Is God's word for you enough? It's not. We're not the first generation to think that we know better than God. And so here, Uzzah is dead. David's angry. You can be honest with how you feel with God. But here's what you can't do. Write it down. You cannot allow the culture wherein you live dictate the way you approach and worship God. Let me say it again. You cannot allow the culture wherein you live dictate the way you approach and worship God. When culture says, your God is ancient, your God is a relic, get with the times. You cannot allow the cultural standards of today's Babylon you and I are living in to dictate the way you approach. They thought it would be more efficient to put it in a cart. God said, it's not about your efficiency. It's about your obedience. Don't put it in a cart, carry it. They were already off kilter because they should have been carrying the ark, not transporting the ark. And furthermore, they were using a Philistine invention. They were adding in stuff to their guidelines that were of the world's making. He said, I don't need a cart. I need you to, I need you to care about the, 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 the presence of God. You don't throw that in the, in the guest room. You don't throw that in the truck bed. You hold on to it. Families, listen to me. The presence of God just doesn't accidentally show up in your home. You got to hold it. You got to walk with it. You, you, you can't just put it on Right Now Media. That's a great resource we provide. You can't just put it on kids ministry in Nacogdoches and Lufkin and everybody online. You can't just put it on the church and on the pastor. There are some things you can't put a cart you can't put the things of God on a cart. You got to carry those things. You got to feel the weight of those things for your children and your children's children. You gotta, it, yeah, it is more efficient. But it's not right. It's efficient to hand off all of your learning about God to everybody else. But you got to pick up the Bible. Sunday's not enough for you and for me. And we can't allow the culture wherein we live, the busyness of our culture the, the, the um, anti, 
godness of a lot of our culture to dictate the way you're going to approach and worship God. There is coming a time it is becoming harder and harder. Look around the world, it becomes harder and harder to engage certain amounts of freedom, even freedom in worship. There may be a, there may be a day that we are persecuted just like the Bible says we will be. And guess what? Whether inflation comes or not, whether the economy is crazy or not, whether freedoms of religion shrink or expand makes no difference. God is God. You think this is the first time things have been turned upside down? You think this is the first time people have, have distorted their view of God? You think this is the first culture ever in the history of humanity to turn their back on God? You, you, you think this is the first, this first rodeo, first Thanksgiving parade of God? No. He knows, and he's inviting you into the story of leaning on him and not your own understanding right now, just like it was back in the 1700s, back in this time of the Philistines and the Israelites. Put me first. Trust me. I've got this. I don't need you to prop me up. I don't need you to help me. If I want to fall in the river, I'll fall in the river. Just do what I ask you to do. Let me be God and you be you, and I will make you who I'm calling you to be. All right. I got to keep rolling here. So. Uzzah's issues. Here's Uzzah's issues. Uzzah have a lot of issues. But let me tell you what Uzzah's issue isn't. The issue, issue with Uzzah isn't the harshness of God's punishment. Why would a loving God strike down somebody like that? Why would a loving God send someone to hell? Why would a loving God not just let us live the way we feel is best for us to live based on the way we feel? Why is God so harsh? Why is he so narrow-minded? Why is he so not with the times? The issue with Uzzah isn't the harshness of God's punishment. The issue is an incorrect diagnosis of our own wickedness and sin. See, Uzzah had gotten very comfortable 20 years with the presence of God. He had gotten to the point where it was kind of everyday operations. And without thinking about it, even if his motivations were pure, the holiness of God had evaporated. The intensity of who God was had evaporated from Uzzah. And so Uzzah reaches out a hand to keep the ark from falling in the mud. And here's Uzzah's problem. Uzzah's thinking that the mud is dirtier than Uzzah's own hand. And yet the earth had never blasphemed God. The earth had never turned its back on God. The earth never says, I want to be God, not you. The earth has never had its own theories about God. Out of the creation of man and the creation of earth, the creation of earth has been faithful since the beginning. The creation of man has not. Even the Bible says, if we won't cry out, the earth will be faithful. The rocks will cry out in praise if we don't cry out. The earth declares the majesty of God every day, and we don't. And Uzzah's hand made from that same dirt is much dirtier than the creek bed. Here's a problem with humanity. Here's a problem with us, everybody. 
we get to the point where we really, really misunderstand. We incorrectly diagnose our personal need of the cross of Christ to truly be covered because of our wickedness and our sin. Your sin and wickedness deserves for you to be like Uzzah. You have no right to approach the presence of God. So Jesus makes the presence of God available to you by going to the cross and not dying for the world, dying for you. Dying for you. It's usually not our bad deeds that keep us from God, everybody. You feel like, man, I've done so much bad stuff, I don't know if God would ever forgive me. It's not even the bad stuff that really keeps us from God. Can I tell you what the real culprit is? It's usually our good deeds and our own self-righteousness. Thinking that we're a good person. God should honor that. We've done a lot of good things. We've said a lot of good things. I went to youth group when I was a teenager. I give, I give an offering every once in a while. I'm a good person and good people go to hell. Because their sin and wickedness is never given back to God for Jesus to cover it. So here's what happens. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, Whew, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He's like, park this sucker. He was not willing to take the ark to the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Gittite, he's not even, he's not even a Jew. Takes it to Obed-Edom. And here's, here's David. He's like, man, I thought I was going to do a cool thing. We were doing the celebration and the worship and the flutes and the harps and the drums. And God's killing Jews. And so he looks over and there on the, 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 on the side, like you'd see at Disney, is a family holding a, a balloon shaped like the ark. And a kid eating some cotton candy with mom and dad. And he walks over to them and says, hey, guys. They said, hello. And he said, what's your name, Obed? And he says, Obed. We got some situation here we got to take care of. We got to bury Uzzah before midnight tonight, Jewish custom. Can you take the ark and put it at your house? <laughs> Gulp. So Obed, I don't know if he's just like thick in the skull. He says, sure. So sure enough, Obed-Edom takes the ark to his house, to his farm, puts a tarp over it and says, kids, don't play on that. I've heard some bad things about it. And David goes back into Jerusalem. They sneak in the back, back gate they, they don't put the ark there. It's a defeat. And three months go by. And the Bible says that in this three months, Obed wakes up one morning and he walks out to drink his normal cup of coffee and to look over the fields, his harvest fields, and it's like turned into Willy Wonka's greenhouse. For some reason, the presence of God there at his home, his whole farm is being blessed. His whole farm is being blessed. His kids are like, they're, they're walking out and they're like, they got muscles they didn't have. Dunking the basketball in the driveway. They, 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 walking in, Obed walks in and his wife says, have you been working out, stud? He's like, you know the way we do? I mean, his, his watermelons are selling for five times the normal price. Everything's going gangbusters. He can't lose and... The Bible says that King David was told that the Lord had blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. <laughs> so what does David do? What does David do? What? He's got, he's got watermelons the, the, the size of a Goodyear blimp? What? So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. 90 days later, it's amazing how he forgot what all had happened. 
This is not in your notes, but if you want to jot it down, I'd encourage you to. The supernatural activity of God that's rejected when we don't understand it, because that had happened and they rejected it and they put it in the corner. It can also be turned to and embraced in times of need. Look, I'm not in favor of a bunch of flesh getting into people and doing um, abracadabra, hocus pocus, making church a show. I'm not interested in that. But do you know that there sometimes are physical manifestations and there, there are other activities of God that we don't understand and in times we don't understand it, we tend to lock him up in the closet. But then when we really need him, we're willing to take him all. What I wanna say to you is let God be God. Let God be God. If he wants to do it in his time, let him do it in his time. If, if he wants to give a gift this way, let, let him give the gift. You, you don't, it doesn't have to look just like that for you. Let God be God. And so here's what happens when those that were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, every six steps, you want to talk about an inefficient plan. He sacrificed a bull and, and a fattened calf. They are doing it God's way. God's way may take longer. God's may, way may not be the quickest way from A to B. God's way may not match up with what you think is the best strategy for your finances, for your sexuality, for your life, for your marriage. God's way it takes some time. God's way takes some attitude adjustment. God's way takes some, so, so, some willingness to walk and stop and walk and stop and walk and stop. And, and God's way takes some surrender to it. Do it God's way, everybody. Do it God's way every six steps. And I wonder, this is, this is not what it means, but I wonder if you could tie it together that every six days we ought to stop for a little bit and give a sacrifice of praise. Every single morning ought to be a sacrifice of praise, but there's something powerful about every six days that you stop your normal routine and you get the kids together and you go and you celebrate and you sacrifice and you worship and you put God first. And every six days you got that moment where you say, God, you deserve it all. You deserve the glory and the the honor and we're not going to do another month. We're not going to do another week. We're not going to do another day without making sure that you know that we know that you are God and we are not. And this is what David is doing all the way to Jerusalem. But it kind of gets a little weird because David isn't on the steed now. He's not dressed in his royal garb. He's actually stripped down and he's wearing a linen ephod. As he's wearing that linen ephod, it's like under, it's, it's like long johns. David was dancing before the Lord with all his might while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. Can I say something to you? This is one of the charismatic's favorite scripture. Charismatic church and charismatic charisma simply means touched. That's what it means. Um, like, like a physical touching. This is one of our favorite verses. Like, hey, David danced before the Lord. We ought to be able to dance before the Lord. And you know what? You ought to be able to. There's nothing wrong with that. But I want you to, to notice that David's setting the tone and he's not grabbing anybody else by the hand saying, you need to dance too. Because it's not about the dancing, everybody. Okay, that's taken out of context. If we're really gonna worship the Lord, we ought to be free like that. God cares about freedom here way, way more than out here. But I, 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 do t I will say some of you need to let the freedom of your heart um, speak to the freedom of your face. Like you're free, but you're like, you look, you look bound up. <laughs> like bound up or stuffed up or, or something, stopped up. <laughs> you need the freedom of the Holy Spirit. What just happened? I don't even know what I just did. <laughs> Sorry. So why is he in his linen ephod? Why is he half naked before the Lord? Here's why. It's not about showing you you ought to dance and worship. 
Although in your personal corporate time, corporately, we're after presenting our focus on God corporately together. Um, we, some, some lift their hands, some don't. Some shout, some don't. Some sing loud, some don't. That's okay. The goal is that we would, we would be like a, 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 a band together walking in lockstep and there can be unique instrumentation. Um, when, when it gets a, a little uh, crazy is when um, somebody wants to do a guitar solo over here in the middle of the marching band and, and the attention goes off of God and onto the, the guitar soloist, do you see? And, and so I'm giving that as an illustration. David, here's why he's stripped down, is not to put the focus on David. Here's what David's heart is saying. The real king is passing by. The real presence of power, the real presence of principle, the real presence of provision is represented by this box, not by this man. And he strips down all of his royalty and he dances like a commoner because he's saying, this, this is the real power. This is what Saul struggled with. Saul wanted to be a big deal in everyone's eyes. David, though, wanted God to be a big deal in everyone's eyes. That's what David was doing. David wanted God to be a big deal in everyone's eyes. So, as we wrap up, as I put the landing gear down today, as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, you remember Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window, and when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. She's watching from the third story, and she's seeing him meander through the city streets, and she, she, she's calloused and cold and despising her husband. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed again, burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. And then here's what he does. He then goes to the people and he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women, everybody. And all the people went to their homes. You're gonna get lost if you don't know Jewish culture. Raisins are an aphrodisiac. Just telling you, in that culture. That's what it was known as. And in the Hebrew, it actually says the cake of raisins. It also says a flagon of wine. Every, every family got a flagon of wine. I don't know how much that is, but probably enough to get a good buzz going. Here's what David's doing. He is blessing everybody, just like manna, but it's provision. And it's because of God and it's honoring God. He's giving a huge portion of his wealth, an extravagant gift to everybody. And he's saying, go home and be fruitful. Go home, be fruitful and multiply. Go, go home and enjoy. Happy Thanksgiving. We'll see you at the hospital in August. <laughs> and David's the same way. David is pumped. And when David returned home to bless his household. So David gets done with the ark. He goes through the front doors there. The huge foyer of David's palace. The black and white checkered tile. The double rounded maneuvering staircase to the second and third and fourth uh, uh, levels of this house. He comes in and says, honeys, I'm home. Because he's married multiple times. <laughs> honeys, I'm home and I'm in a good mood. Get your shopping shoes on. Don't be wearing no high heels. Get those new balance orthopedic shoes. 
We going to Jerusalem, Nordstrom's. You want some pearls? We going to get some pearls. You want some fur? We going to get some pearls. We going to get some fur. He's excited. And he sees, and, he, and, 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 and he's excited about what's going to happen. But Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him. Michael's tapping her foot and has got her arms, her arms crossed like this. <laughs> Leaning over the banister. Looking good, sport. How good of the king. Okay, you got the ark, but then you, you walk around half naked, acting like a, like a half naked drunken pervert in front of all those ladies. Real good, real good attitude, real good presentation of the crown, Davy. She completely despises his heart of worship. What is up with her? Jeez. For real? She just missed out on a Porsche chariot. Here's Michael's issue. Here's Michael's issue. Circumstances surrounding Michael's life distorted her view of God. Go ahead and help me out, Cody. Before you start judging Michael too harshly, I want to bring you back to what Michael dealt with. Fifteen years earlier, Michael is kissing David on the mouth. He's shimmying down the gutter and is escaping from Saul who's out to kill him. Saul shows up and Michael says, Michael's bold in that moment with David, I love you. And the Bible says, Michael, David's wife, allowed him to escape. But when Saul showed up, Saul says, what have you done? Where's your loyalty? And she cowers under the fear of her dad. And she lies. And she says, he told me he'd hurt me if, if, if I didn't help him. And she betrays her husband who she loved. And Saul is, is, is full of vitriol. He uses her as a pawn. He says, fine, David's gone, you're gone too. And she takes, he takes, and to spite David with his own daughter, One of his soldiers gallops her down the road to a man named Paltiel, and he gives her to another man. The next 15 years, Michael becomes the wife of Paltiel, and life is normal. Life just goes on for Michael. She no longer has the accolades of being in the kingdom. She is not next to the king all the time. She certainly is not in the chariot next to the greatest warrior who had ever lived. She's kind of forgotten. David becomes king and in order to establish his political strength, he sends one of his guards to go get Michael, Abner. And unbeknownst to Michael and Paltiel, one morning they're sitting having breakfast in the kitchen and the front door busts open. And two guards and Abner walk in and they start pulling stuff out of her closet and putting it in bags. She's like, what is going on? And Paltiel's like, guys, what, 
happening. They're not talking and Abner's standing there as they grab the bags and then they grab Michael and they drag her off of the front porch and Abner grabs her and puts her over the saddle of his own horse. And Paltiel saying, what are you doing? What are you doing? Because Paltiel loved Michael, the Bible says. And Abner begins to trot that horse out of the front yard of Paltiel's house. And the Bible says that Paltiel followed, crying, weeping, wailing, please don't take my wife. And finally, Abner has to stop the horse and whip around with his dagger in the throat to Paltiel says, if you keep following me, I'm going to cut your throat and kill you where you stand. This is the king's wife. This is the king's wife. leave Paltiel in a shrunken, broken mess, and Michael pulled out of the only stability she had known, put back in David's home. She was, he was the enemy of her dad, and she watches him have victories that her dad didn't, become the king that she wished her dad would have been, and it dis she despises him. He gets home and says, honeys, I'm home. She's, she's not seeing our king that we see. She's, she's seeing the cause of her pain and wounds and brokenness of her life that she was just ripped from. Don't be too hard on Michael. But I will tell you that the circumstances surrounded her, it distorted her view of God. And some of you have been wounded in a way that nobody will ever understand. But it's not just been the wound, the wound, it's distorted your view of God. And you think that God's just happy about killing people in creek beds. And your perspective is all wrong. Michael gives David a what for, and David shouts back, kind of rips right back into her and says, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father. Let's not get it wrong here. Your daddy ain't boss anymore. He chose me before your father or anyone from his house. You're all concerned about the king looking like your daddy looked. I ain't your daddy. I'm not the king like that. God's king. He appointed me ruler of the Lord's people. I will celebrate before the Lord however I jolly well please. Don't you try to put his armor on me just like he tried to put his armor on me. I got to keep God first. And this whole chapter, this whole parade ends with a very sad verse and it says, Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. It could be that David never slept with her again. It could be that she was forgotten in the corner of the palace. It could have been that her bitterness just dried her up, stole her joy and her peace and her fruit. What if she did not let the wounds of her past distort God? What if when she heard the sound of those trumpets and those tambourines and she looked through the window on the third floor and she sees David dancing, she says, oh, that's, that's my man. This has been one heck of a life, but that is my man. And what if when David walked into that black and white checkered tile palace foyer 
she, she flows down the banister, grabs him and scoops him up and kisses him on the mouth and says, I saw you from the room. I saw you from the door. I saw you from the window worshiping our God. That's the man I married a long time ago. You are not who my dad tried to tell me you were. Let's go worship God together. Who knows? Who knows what Michael's story would have been? Maybe we never would have heard of Bathsheba. You cannot control the suffering inflicted on you by others, everybody. You can't control it. Suffering's gonna happen to good people and bad people, Christians and pagans. But you can also not allow it to control you. Best you can, you offer your palms up to God, hurts and all, wounds and all, scars and all, distractions and all. Let God be God and he will not leave you or forsake you. It's not you that has to die in the creek bed. Uzzah represents Jesus. Jesus died for you because you can't handle the presence of God. The presence of God was removed from his own son, forsaken on the cross, so you could be a son and daughter of the one true king. Would you close your eyes with me and bow your heads? Maybe you're here and you need to recalibrate a perspective. Maybe you're here and you need to slow down and do it God's way. Maybe you're here and you need to, you need to guard your heart from the bitterness. Wherever you are, whoever you are, whatever you're going through, he loves you and he's not mad at you. He's welcoming you into a relationship with him today, a deeper one. Worship him, honor him, yield to him. Let me pray for you. Father, in the name of Jesus, for every head bowed and every eye closed, I pray that you would be God enough for them, that they would embrace you in times of good and in times of bad, when things make sense and when things you just cannot make sense of it. Pray they would worship you with their heart, mind, and soul. Thank you, Jesus, that we don't have to go to a piece of furniture in a church, but we can boldly approach your throne of grace. And it's not a furniture, it's your heart, it's your presence that is available to every person, young and old, in the sound of my voice, that it's not about the furniture, it's about you, Jesus. It's not about the presence tucked away in some box. It's about a, not about a philosophy, it's about a person. And you're approachable, and you're reachable, and your arms are open and spread out to receive us, dirt and all, junk and all, despised, uh, ridicule and all, sorry and all criticism and all and you start where we are and you wash us clean and you give us next steps and we invite you to do that to all of our hearts today for the first time or a fresh time and we say it in Jesus mighty name everybody said amen